one of the songs I've been singing to Scarlett before bed since we first brought her home is The Sound of Silence. And recently she started singing along. Guys, I gotta say this has been like my proudest moment. Because I love that song. For the record, I think I've got at least three or four sermons in me that I've been kicking around on the sound of silence. I could preach for days about that song, but today I'm going to try to just, just preach one, just one of those sermons. So it's nothing against Simon and Garfunkel, but the sound of silence only got back on my radar a few years ago when the heavy metal band Disturbed did a version of it, and oh... Trust me on this one. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. There is something in this song that just needs the intensity of a heavy metal band with a name like Disturbed to carry its message. All right, so I talked about vulnerability last week. So here's the last verse. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sound of silence. Are you feeling good? (laughs) It is really hot in here. (laughs) All right. Here's what I want to draw your attention to. This neon god that the people are worshiping is only an idol because they treat it like one. They direct their prayer and their devotion to this thing in itself, and they're not paying attention to what the sign actually says to the way it points beyond itself to something else. Because this neon sign is not trying to be a god. It's actually trying to point the people in the right direction, to give them a message. The words it was forming, again, are the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. If you want to know what's going on in the world today, pay attention to the people who are on the margins, in the tenements and subways. You can hear the revolution of the mid-60s there. But that also sounds like the nature of the gospel to me. It's Jesus among the least of these, preaching good news to the poor. Okay, shoot. One sermon. One sermon. Okay. The neon sign is pointing beyond itself. It's behaving like John the baptizer, who points to Jesus. When, when John is depicted in religious artwork, he is almost always depicted pointing, echoing those words he will speak later in John's gospel of Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. Yes, John is the voice in the wilderness, but he is preparing the way for someone else. He's been baptizing, and he's got disciples of his own, but he doesn't keep them for himself. And when the one they've been preparing for comes along, John immediately points them in the right direction. Don't look at me anymore. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you notice that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was originally a disciple of John the Baptist before he became a disciple of Jesus? 
That's one of the original 12. Started someplace else. Andrew doesn't get hung up on John, but follows John's pointing finger in order to follow Jesus. And then Andrew himself also becomes a pointing sign for Simon. He goes and gets his brother saying, come on, this is the guy. This pattern continues in the verses following, which we didn't read this morning, where Jesus calls Philip, and then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel and invites him to come along and follow Jesus too, saying, come and see. This is the invitational pattern of discipleship. It's the pattern of the neon sign. To be a messenger of the gospel, always pointing beyond ourselves to Jesus, always inviting others to come along to come and see. And we're now in the second part of a two-week series on being chosen. Chosen for what? Last week, as we celebrated the ordination and installation of our new elders, I talked about what we're chosen for, about how it's not about us as the church, but to be about Jesus and following him. It's to be a neon sign. And that dynamic of pointing beyond ourselves is what I want to talk about today. Because I think that is the key to what it means to be chosen in Scripture. It's not about having a special quality that draws attention to this chosen person or chosen group of people. It's not about being the chosen one to the exclusion of the unchosen others. If disturbed and Simon and Garfunkel can be trusted, and I think they can be. All right, if John's gospel can be trusted... It's the pattern of John the baptizer and the disciples, and even Jesus, who himself says, come and see. It's to be a neon sign, not to draw attention to self, but to invite others along and point beyond. Come and see. It's a chosenness for, not for its own sake, not to exclude others, but to include others on the journey. All right, if we're going to deal with chosenness today, why don't we begin with our reputation as Presbyterians. Come on, how does it feel to be the frozen chosen? I remember the first time I heard that phrase, it's never a compliment. It usually has to do with our reputation for being what we might like to call decent and in order, but what others seem to think is more reserved or rigid or lacking enthusiasm and energy. I don't know about all that. I'm speaking from experience as someone who knows what it's like to try to corral y'all during the passing of the peace. <laughs> that being said, the first time I heard that phrase used, it cut deeper than our supposedly reserved demeanor. I was in high school European history, and when we got to the Reformation, all the Protestant denominations started showing up. This was a public high school, mind you, but it's the South. So the whole class started seeing their different church experiences showing up on the pages of our textbook. We had the Catholics represented in the classroom, and here come the Lutherans, here come the Anglicans. The Baptists and Methodists had to wait a little later. And then there's our friend, John Calvin. When my teacher, of all people, heard I was a Presbyterian, he commented, frozen chosen. Right? And by that, he was talking about our other reputation for belief in predestination and pointing out how that belief can create a deterministic outlook on life. If God has predestined everything, chosen some for salvation, chosen others for something else, what's the point of doing anything? Why not be passive, frozen? 
It's interesting, as I was preparing this week, I ran a Google search for Frozen Chosen. I was curious to see what would come up. And wouldn't you know it, the first thing that came up had nothing to do with theology. What came up was a battle from the Korean War, the Battle of Chosen Reservoir, and that's chosen with an I, not an E. And apparently, some historians call this the single most brutal conflict in the history of the American Marines in terms of the intensity of fighting, the number of casualties, and significantly for my Google search, the actual conditions of the conflict. It was frozen. The Battle of Chosen Reservoir took place in late November, early December, and it was brutally cold. It was the frozen chosen. The veterans who put their lives on the line in that place were called the chosen few. And the brutal intensity of that battle cultivated what we now recognize as the uniquely intense reputation of the Marine Corps. According to one website, this battle is where the Marines got some of their characteristic sayings, like, we're surrounded. Good. That simplifies the problem. <laughs> and we're not retreating. We're attacking in a different direction. A chosenness in that context was certainly not an especially enviable position to be in. It certainly wasn't passive. It meant fighting impossible odds. It meant grit and being scrappy under the worst conditions. As any veteran will tell you, when you're in that position, fighting on the line, you're not fighting for grand ideals. It's not for nation or democracy or justice or freedom. You're fighting for the people who serve beside you. This is what I've heard from the veterans that I served when I was a chaplain at the VA hospital in Durham, North Carolina. When it comes right down to it, they'd say, to the reason people give their lives, the international politics, the policies, the politicians, all that fades away. What's really going on is people fighting for the person next to them, for the friends they love. That's what I've heard. And it makes me wonder about how we decide who we love who our friends are, who we fight and die for. Because, as the veterans I've talked to have said, when you are out there, you start to realize that everyone on the field of battle, no matter what side, everyone is fighting for the people beside them. Tragedy of war is that the people on both sides of the fighting are sort of fighting for the same thing. They're fighting for the people they love. So imagine if we could fight not only for the people standing beside us, but also for the people standing across from us. If there was no limit to the ones we love and fight for. I get that this is like the problem of the human condition. That for one reason or another, we find ways of turning on each other. That war between people, families, communities, and nations has always been with us. But just for a moment, try to imagine what it would be like for the intensity of our love for our friends and family to be turned also toward our enemies and to strangers, and that in fighting for love we could put an end to fighting. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus says this at table to his friends on the night before he lays down his life for them. But we know that he gave his life not only for them, the chosen few at the table with him, 
but for everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He gives his life not just for his friends, but for strangers and for his enemies too. As from the cross, he prays for those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This kind of unconditional, non-discriminating love for friends, strangers, and enemies alike is a radical commitment to cut through the categories and limits we usually place on our love to build an infinitely broader vision of family that leaves nobody out. This is the foundation of what Martin Luther King once called beloved community. After the Supreme Court desegregated buses in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956, King said, the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption, the end is creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of all people. Oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to be invited to come and see that. There's not really a way to answer once and for all why God chooses people. God's choices are ultimately mysterious, but I think this is part of it. To lead us to come together in love, to lead us to build beloved community. So let's talk about chosenness in our scriptures today. According to Isaiah, the Lord called me before I was born. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. There's the chosenness of Israel. God's choice has nothing to do with anything anyone does. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me, Isaiah says. God's servant Israel is chosen before Israel is even born, before Israel can do anything about it. It is unconditional love, grace without condition, based only on God's choice. Nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to get rid of it. But I want you to listen carefully. There's a dynamic of being chosen. It's not static. And this is the way predestination actually works in Scripture. So here's me trying to solve that whole thing. God's people are chosen not so that they can keep their chosenness to themselves, but so they can share their chosenness with all people. According to Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the way God has chosen to relate to our world, to work through one people to reach all people. And it goes all the way back to God's first word to Abraham, that original chosen one, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses Abraham not to bless one family to the exclusion of all other families. It's to bless one family for the inclusion of all other families. Being chosen is not a status of salvation that includes some and not others. It's a mission. The chosen are those who are sent 
to welcome others in God's name, to live in love for all people so that God's blessing and redemption might reach to the ends of the earth. It's John pointing the way to Jesus. It's Andrew pointing the way for Simon. It's Philip going to get Nathaniel. It's the invitation, come and see. Why do it this way? Why choose some in order to invite others? Why bless some in order to bring blessing to all? Because I think God wants us to deal with each other. Sure, God could have shown up to each and every single one of us and all the peoples of the earth, just like he showed up to Abraham. Why not do that and be done with it? Because then we wouldn't have to figure out how to love each other along the way. God has chosen to do it this way, to work through some in order to get to all, so that there's no getting to God without having to get close to other people. For us members of the Gentile nations of the world, people who were not originally chosen, don't ever forget that. There's no getting to God without coming to the shining light of God's chosen people, without coming to John the Israelite, John the baptizer, who invites us to come and see, here's the lamb who bears the sin of the world. There's no getting to Jesus without coming alongside all those other people who are also trying to get to him, bumping into the Andrews and the Peters along the way, and then inviting others to come along with us as we meet them. We invite as we have been invited, and we welcome as we have been welcomed, as we say at the passing of the peace every single week. We point beyond ourselves, just as the people who called us to come along pointed beyond themselves. And through all of that, pointing and welcoming and inviting, we learn to love unconditionally, and we discover beloved community. The point of being chosen is to be for others, not for ourselves. It's to be the flash of a neon light that split the night. There's another Sound of Silence reference to close us out. It's to be a sign shining the gospel light of God's love for the whole world. To be the chosen is not being about the special few who keep their specialness to themselves, living out their days in passive resignation as the frozen chosen. It's about being called beyond ourselves, being called to reach out in love to all without distinction between friends and enemies. It's about beloved community, love without condition. It's about learning to see everyone standing beside us and no one standing across from us. It's about laying down our lives in love for this whole world that God so loved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.